You've probably heard of this scene before. A man stands before a judge, facing charges for terrible crimes. And this guy has a record a mile long. He's a career criminal. And the jury, after reviewing all the evidence, finds him guilty. It's up to the judge to decide his fate. And will he be lenient to this man or send him to prison for the rest of his life? What if the man, this convict, throws himself on the mercy of the court? What if he begs the judge for a lighter sentence? And the judge, seeing his remorse or just having a stroke of kindness, decides to let him go free. Now, this is not something that happens all the time, but it certainly can. A judge can decide to give a convicted person any sentence he wants. And he could even overturn a guilty verdict and just set him free. And so, despite being guilty of those crimes, this man walks out of the court free. Now, let's ask ourselves something. What is the man thinking in that moment? Now, you or I probably are thinking, wow, I got a second chance. You know, this time, I'm not going to do the same thing. No more crime. I'm going straight. But let's be honest, that's not the world we're living in, right? Would a hardened criminal, a career criminal, think that way? Isn't it more likely he would be saying to himself, Ha! I got away with it. Now next time, when I commit a crime, I just have to make sure I don't get caught. Now we know the judge set him free because he was expecting him to change his ways. He gave him a second chance so he could start over and obey the law rather than break it. But just because he's been cleared of those charges doesn't mean he's suddenly a good person, right? He could just as easily go back to breaking the law. And in some cases, he might be encouraged to continue to be a criminal because that time he got away with it. Now, of course, it's a foolish way of thinking, but it is, of course, a possibility. So what does it have to do with the gospel? Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news of God's grace. Every single person who believes in Jesus Christ is forgiven of all their sins. You see, you and I are, are that convicted criminal. We're guilty. But instead of jail, we're facing a death sentence, eternal death. But because Jesus took the punishment we deserve, we can be forgiven. And this is what the Bible calls grace. Unmerited, unearned favor from God. You didn't earn it by doing good works. It was earned for you through Jesus' suffering. Now, the Bible strongly emphasizes this truth of grace. Nobody is saved because of what they do. You're only saved, only forgiven, because Jesus shed his blood for you. Forgiveness is given to every person who believes in Jesus, no strings attached. Now, this is more than just an accessory to the gospel. This is the gospel. Grace is the foundation of your faith in God, if you believe in Jesus. And without this truth, you have nothing. But the Bible clearly teaches us that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sins. But of course, that leaves us with a question Christians have been wrestling with for centuries. And it's a lot like that man set free from jail. If a Christian is totally forgiven by God through Jesus, what is stopping a Christian from thinking, hey, I'm forgiven by grace, so it doesn't really matter what I do, right? I'm forgiven. If grace is unconditional and freely given, does it mean a Christian can, in fact, live any way they want? Christians have been wrestling and trying to figure out this issue since the first century church. And scholars and theologians and pastors have come up with different arguments. And some of those arguments, though, are not biblical. And they, in fact, go to the point of tarnishing the reality of grace. But what does the Bible say? Well, let's find out. I'm Adam Castellino, and this is the Gospel Talker Podcast.
So before we jump into the question, we need to establish this reality of grace. If you listen to my previous episodes, you know how much I believe in the importance of God's grace, but for the sake of this episode, let's make it very clear. The Bible states we are totally forgiven when we turn to Jesus. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God will always forgive us of our sins. The Bible is very clear on that. But a verse like 1 John 1.9, when taken in isolation, doesn't give us the whole picture. Paul explains that grace is much greater than our sin. The truth is you cannot out the grace of God given to us through Jesus our Lord. Romans 5.20 says this, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now this is a very important verse on grace, because there are people out there who will tell you that if you sin, to some extent, grace will run out. If you keep sinning as a Christian, God will in fact judge you and condemn you. But that is not what Paul is saying here. Now, the word Paul uses for increase in this verse is the Greek pleonazo, and it signifies something that superabounds. Okay, so not a little bit. He's saying that sin has superabounded by humans. That's like a dam breaking and all the water just flooding out into a valley. But then he says where sin superabounds, grace, hupoparisio. In the Greek, parisio is another word that can mean abound or superabound, abound in great measure. But Paul modifies that word with a prefix, hooper, which is where we get our word hyper. And he's saying grace hyper superabounds or sin superabounds. And English translations don't really do this verse justice because we don't have normal words like this. So that's why it requires some explanation. Where sin superabounds, it grows and grows and grows, but grace hyper superabounds. Grace is much, much, much greater than that damn bursting flood of sin in your life. This is what Paul is teaching us. Grace given to us through Jesus Christ is so powerful, it cannot be stopped by sin. After all, God's grace is unmerited favor. It is detached from your merit, from your earning it, from what you are deserving or worthy of. So because of that, there's no amount of sin that could suddenly unqualify you for grace. Because you never qualified for it in the first place. It was freely given to you because Jesus suffered in your place. So there's no amount of sin God cannot or will not forgive. Hyper, super abounding. That is the power of grace to forgive you of your sins. This is not something we should just quickly rush past in this episode. Okay, this is the foundation of the gospel. This is why you are saved when you turn to Jesus. Nothing you can do can invalidate or overcome or nullify God's grace. That is because Jesus Christ provided this grace for you through his suffering on the cross. God the Son gave up his life. He suffered in unimaginable ways, so right now you can be totally forgiven of every wrong thing you've ever done. That is why we call it good news. You know, every Christian needs to remind themselves of this truth every day. You know, we should have it plastered on our foreheads, essentially. This is why we are saved, why we are going to heaven, why right now we are right with God. It's not because of our good works. It's not because of our ability to perfectly obey what the Bible says, but because God's giving us grace through our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me say this again. There is no amount of sin you could commit that cannot or will not be forgiven by God if you believe in Jesus. You cannot lose your salvation. A believer in Jesus will never go to hell. Your salvation, your forgiveness was purchased by the precious blood of Jesus. Do not believe anyone who thinks that you could lose your salvation or be condemned to hell. That would override what Jesus did for you, and that's impossible. But the reason people teach this nonsense that a Christian who was born again, if they sin, they'll go to hell, is because they're 
afraid that grace gives us an excuse to keep on sinning. But when you think about grace in the biblical way, you're going to realize that line of thinking is just cynical. God went to such great lengths to save us from our sin. Jesus died on the cross to save us from hell, to bring us forgiveness. So it makes no sense that once we receive grace, we now have this blank check to keep on living like the devil. Any Bible-believing Christian inherently knows they must abstain from sin. But it's important to have some clear arguments from the Bible to explain exactly why, especially since we realize we're forgiven in grace. You know, there will always be cynics or unbelievers or perhaps even new Christians who are not fully trained in Scripture who might think, well, I'm forgiven in grace, I could keep on sinning. So we need solid, Bible-based reasons for why we, the people of God who have received grace, should still, as always, flee from sin. So in this episode, I am presenting five reasons that we'll go through. And you might be wondering, why five? Well, there are some really good arguments that Christians and pastors make to explain to the church why they have to avoid sin. And while these are true, very good, very sound reasons, they do have what I'm calling logical flaws, meaning that a cynic uh, can push against these reasons or, or find gaps in them or loopholes so they could go on and keep sinning. Well, see, that's not good enough. If the Word of God stands forever, it can withstand scrutiny and this kind of pressure from cynics and unbelievers. If you call yourself a Christian and you want to live by biblical truth, you're going to encounter unbelievers in the world, and you need solid answers for their questions, especially this one. And although you might inherently know, oh, I don't want to sin anymore, can you articulate specifically why you should not sin? It's not because God's going to punish you. The Bible says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As we just saw in Romans 5, grace super hyper abounds over sin. It's greater than all your sin. So that's not why we shouldn't sin, fear of punishment. But there's still biblical reasons that now us, forgiven under grace, should flee sin and pursue righteousness. Now in the end, I believe there's one solid, unshakable reason a Christian must flee from sin. And it kind of ties all the other reasons together, and we're going to look at that as well. So, in Romans 5, Paul makes it clear that we cannot out-sin the grace of God. And he said in Romans 5.20 that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Now, in the next chapter of Romans, he addresses the very question we are talking about. If grace abounds, why not keep on sinning? He even writes, well, why don't we keep on sinning so that grace may continue to abound? And Romans 6 provides some very important truth regarding this question. So we're going to be looking at it a few times in this episode. But despite what you may be expecting, Paul actually doesn't spend most of chapter 6 on the why we shouldn't sin. Instead, he focuses on the what, meaning what has changed that we no longer have to sin. He gives a very good explanation about how our relationship to sin has changed after we come to Christ. But in verse 21, he does give a very good why reason for why we must flee sin. This is an amazing verse. It shows just how brilliant the Holy Spirit is when he speaks through Apostle Paul. Romans 6.21, Paul writes, What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. So this is the first reason we as Christians, forgiven by grace, must flee from sin. To avoid the negative earthly consequences of sinful behavior. Now there's actually quite a few passages in the Bible I could point to that teach us this truth. That sin brings terrible consequences in this life and that enough should keep us from sinning. But what Paul writes here is so good and I wanted to focus on it. Notice what he says. It's so great. It kind of smacks us in the face. What he's saying is, what benefits did you get from sin? You know, sin, the stuff you now are ashamed of? 
It's a question, of course, with an obvious answer. You got zero benefits from those old sins. They didn't help you. In fact, sin only hurt you. And now that you're a Christian, when you think back on your old sinful life, you feel ashamed for what you did. And of course, we're forgiven, but the memories still, you know, irk us. But why are there no benefits in sin? Because Paul says there, the end of sin is death. He goes on to write in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. But we often think of death in the terms of literal death, of course, or spiritual death. And both of those are outcomes of sin. But it also means death in a broader sense. The results of sin in your life are never good. Sin brings about negative consequences. Yes, if you're a born-again Christian, you're forgiven. And that means God's not going to punish you for your sin. But if you think you could keep sinning and get away with it in the here and now, you're really fooling yourself. Let's say you had an anger problem. And in the past, before Christ, you used to blow up at the slightest issue. But now, you have Jesus, and you know you're forgiven from all that sinful anger. But let's say tomorrow something ticks you off so much that you punch your hand into the wall. Not a good reaction, right? Is it sinful? Of course. Are you still forgiven in Jesus? You better believe it. But that doesn't change the fact that your hand is broken. God has forgiven you for that outburst, but you still have to deal with the consequences of punching the wall. And that might include going to the hospital and finding some plaster to fix your wall. Now this reason, of course, is is prominently explored in the Bible. Many times we read about how God's people disobeyed him and suffered terrible consequences. And the books of Psalms and Proverbs spend a lot of time explaining what can happen to someone when they indulge in sin. Here's a good example. Proverbs 23, verses 29 through 35. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed drink. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. Because at the last bite... It's like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you'll be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies at the top of a mast saying, They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When can I wake up and uh, go find another drink? Proverbs using a lot of humor here, but the message is so true. (laughs) Just as true today as it was back then. And this is one of many passages in Scripture that warn us that sin can lead to disaster in our life. That's about alcohol, but it's about so many other things as well. You see, God does care about your life. If you thought he only cared about your afterlife or maybe the spiritual part of your life and not your physical life, your relationships, your health, your mental well-being, you were misled. Because God created you. And he does want you to enjoy this life. Of course, this earthly life is temporary. And we are looking forward to a much better eternity with Jesus. But that doesn't mean what's going on in the here and now isn't important. Jesus promised that those who come to him will have life and life more abundantly. Part of that requires us to abstain from the things that will poison our life. Which, of course, is sin. Now, if you want more evidence, okay, Jesus himself talked about sin in this way. In John chapter 5, he meets a man who had been sitting at the well of Bethesda, and he's waiting for someone to, to put him into the water. He was crippled for 38 years, but yet Jesus comes and heals him. Now, shockingly, this man, unlike many other people Jesus healed, didn't seem to really just embrace Jesus as Lord and Messiah. Because we find out later on, Jesus finds him in the temple, and gives him this very sobering warning. In John 5, 14, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now, Jesus wasn't trying to threaten this man. He was simply stating the obvious. Okay, this guy has been crippled for decades. 
And what Jesus is saying here implies that he was crippled by something he did. Now Jesus is telling him, if you keep sinning, something worse might happen. Now, what could be worse than ending up crippled for 38 years? I don't know. I don't want to think about it. But this passage does tell us that Jesus knows and is warning us that sin leads to terrible consequences. Now, if you believe in Jesus, you are forgiven of your sin. But that doesn't mean negative consequences won't come upon you if you lie at work, cheat on your spouse, run the speed limit, etc., etc. Now, for most of us, that is probably a good enough reason to abstain from sin. But like I said, there are actually a few flaws in this argument. Okay, a cynical person will try to press on this and find, you know, loopholes. So we need to address those. Now, one of the problems uh, of this argument, or just having this as the only argument to avoid sin, is that it places heavy emphasis on this life. Yes, I just said God cares about your earthly life. But we are not living for this life. We are living for eternity. If we avoid sin simply to avoid, you know, present circumstances, that might lead us to only be concerned with our present circumstances. Not only that, this cynical person might think to themselves, well, hey, as long as I avoid the negative consequences for my sin, I could keep on doing it. Okay, that's a very stupid thing to think, but there are people out there who might think that way and we need to address it. You know, they might think to themselves, well, as long as my wife doesn't find out, I could keep seeing this little girl on the side. Or, hey, you know, I drink when I'm at home. I'm not going to get behind the wheel of a car, so it's okay if I get blackout drunk. No one's getting hurt. Now, of course, this is all foolish ways of thinking, but there are sins that you might be able to hide for a long time maybe even for your entire life. So why should you bother abstaining from them if you won't get caught? And then there are people in the world who always seem to avoid the consequences for their sin. You know, the wealthy celebrities and politicians, they get in trouble, but they could hire an army of lawyers and get out of going to jail. And there are people who never seem to suffer for their wrongdoing. Now, that's, of course, foolish, but someone might look at that and think, you see, if God forgives me and I could get out of the problem, why shouldn't I just keep sinning? Now, there's an even bigger problem with this argument, too, okay, or just using this as the only argument for avoiding sin. Because if we should avoid sin to avoid the negative consequences, then what about doing good? Because if that argument's true, the inverse must also be true, that we should do good to enjoy the positive consequences of it. But now we're back under the law, because the law was structured that if you do good, you got good. If you do bad, you get bad. But that's not going to work when we're under grace. We are not living to earn good things from God. The reality is we have good from God from, by grace, and because of that we seek to do good. And if we think we do good simply for positive uh, outcomes... What about the times when we do the right thing and still suffer negative consequences? There's this famous line from Star Trek The Next Generation where Captain Picard is talking to Data, who's not a human, and he's trying to learn what it means to be human. And Picard's explaining to him, and he says, It is possible to commit no mistakes and still lose. That is not a weakness, that is life. And I know it's crazy that sometimes TV writers know the truth, but it's true. Sometimes doing the right thing doesn't win friends or influence people. Sometimes it means we lose our jobs, get rejected by family, and in some parts of the world it can mean being martyred for our faith. Sometimes doing the right thing itself is a painful sacrifice. There's no good earthly outcome for us if we lay down our lives for others. Now this doesn't negate what I've talked about in the past, that we could expect good things from God in this life, because we do, because of grace. But if we do good things simply for good outcomes, what are we going to do when we do the right thing and there's still negative consequences? You see, we can't think purely in these terms. And the reality is, sin is spiritual. So we cannot rely on earthly arguments, like consequences, as a reason simply to avoid it. There are terrible consequences to sin, but in this life, sometimes they can be avoided. 
and sometimes doing good brings negative consequences. So there needs to be a stronger reason for avoiding sin. That brings us to our second point. The second reason we must avoid sin is simple, because we are supposed to obey God. He told us to avoid these sins, right? So shouldn't we just obey him? Jesus even said this in Luke 6, verses 46, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things I say? Seems pretty straightforward, right? Maybe even too simplistic of a reason? But if you say you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord, it means you are following him. How could someone say they are a Christian, they believe the Bible, they believe Jesus is God, but continue to do things God tells them not to do? Doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, just think about it. God went to such great lengths to save us from sin. He sent Jesus to die for us, to take away our sins. More than that, he gave us a collection of books we call the Bible that teach us right from wrong. Only for the people who call themselves God's children to blatantly disobey him? What would you call people like that? Idiots? Hypocrites? Well, John puts it even more bluntly in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That's brutally honest, I know, but it's true. How could someone say they know Jesus, but simply ignore what he's telling them to do? Part of being a Christian is being a disciple. And that's just a fancy word for student. We are learning about God from him. Part of our training is learning how to live as God wants us to live. That requires taking his word seriously and doing what he says. But that, of course, isn't a complete answer, is it? Saying obey God really is just another way of saying abstain from sin. So what is the reason we must obey God? Is it a fear of punishment? We know that we are forgiven in Christ. And if we sin, God is not going to condemn us. So why should we bother with obeying him? There must be an additional reason for that. You know, to some people, simply saying, you have to obey God, isn't good enough. And God doesn't even end there. Yes, as our almighty creator, we are fools to think we can withstand him or disobey him. But even God explains why it is so important to obey him. And it isn't simply a matter of, well, do good and you get good from God. And if you do bad, he'll punish you. Remember, we are under grace, unmerited favor. Because of that grace, God is blessing us already. Not because we obey him perfectly, but because of what Jesus did for us. We are already receiving good things from him like love, provision, wisdom. So why do we obey him? Well, this is the next reason, and it's related to what we just said. So this is going to take a little bit of explaining, so settle in. Scripture makes it very clear that those who believe in Jesus will not be punished by God for their sins. As I quoted earlier, Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation means God is not going to condemn or punish us for our sins. And that is because Jesus bore in his body our sins on the cross. He took the punishment we deserved so that we could be forgiven and saved. But the Bible does talk about a kind of testing or judgment reserved for Christians. This judgment serves as a way of measuring how we lived our lives as believers in Jesus. And it's a method of holding us accountable and even inspiring us. Now, Paul talks about this judgment in 1 Corinthians Chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. He writes, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid a foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, 
wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he'll suffer loss. He himself will be saved, yet as through fire. So this is one of the more detailed passages about what we call the judgment seat of Christ. Now some people have claimed this testing, or this passage about testing, only applies to preachers of the gospel. Since the context of this chapter is Paul talking about his work and the work of Apollos, another preacher. But that's not really true. Because notice what Paul wrote in verse 10. He said, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. Each one is another way of saying everyone. Let each person or every person. Paul laid a foundation of faith in Jesus Christ. But where did he lay it? Out in the desert somewhere? No, in the hearts of those who heard and believed. Now he's saying, each one of us is responsible for how we build on that foundation. He explains we could build on it with gold, silver, and precious stones. Or we could build on it wood, hay, and straw. No matter what, each one's work will be tested on that day by fire. So what do you think withstands fire best? Gold, silver, jewels? or what we literally use as kindling. Of course, Paul's not talking about an actual building or actual gold and silver. He's using this as an analogy for our lives in Christ. Once we receive Jesus, we receive a new life. We are now to walk with him. Our lives are not our own. They're in Christ's. Notice we don't just live for Christ, as if the Christian life was about doing works for God. No, we live in Christ meaning we now draw our identity, our purpose, our reason for being from Jesus. And what does that produce? If we are living to know Jesus, we of course end up knowing Jesus. And knowing Jesus produces spiritual growth. He said, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. That fruit is the outcome of our faith, gold, silver, and precious stones. Every Christian will stand before the Lord and give an account for their lives. And we see this talked about a lot in the Bible, but another passage is 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. As I said, Christians will not be punished for their sins, but our judgment will be about what we did with what God has given us, namely Christ. So what is Jesus looking for on that day? What does gold, silver, or precious stones represent? Well, it's the product of walking by faith. Solomon in the book of Proverbs compares wisdom as being more precious than gold, silver, and jewels. And God's wisdom, his word, is what nourishes us so we can walk by faith. So if you want gold, silver, precious stones at the day, stand before the Lord. You need to grow and walk by faith, and you're nourished and, and you grow in faith as you feed on God's word. And that produces a life that brings glory to God, so that on that day of judgment you won't be ashamed, but we hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. And the Bible tells us it's this judgment that will re result in our heavenly reward. Now, the New Testament talks a lot about the rewards we could look forward to in God's heavenly kingdom. Specifically, when Christ returns to the earth and rules and reigns, we will be with him. That's something really worth looking forward to. We, our life in that day will be infinitely better than what we have now. We should be looking forward to that heavenly reward. And what is going on in our lives today is going to have uh, ramifications for that reward in eternity. And it's not as complicated as you might think. It doesn't mean you have to become a missionary and go to the far reaches of the earth to get a reward. If God has called you to be a missionary, go for it. But to be prepared for that reward means to be growing and being obedient to God. But imagine if we spend our short fleeting time on this earth not obeying God but pursuing the lusts of the flesh 
When were we exactly walking by faith? How were we growing in the Lord when we spent most of our time indulging in fleeting entertainment, in pride, in greed, sexual sin, alcohol, etc., etc.? You see, all your sins are forgiven thanks to the blood of Jesus, but your heavenly rewards are only available uh, contingent upon how well you ran the race of faith. And Paul says anything that is not of faith is sin. So if you keep uh, promoting your flesh, your lustful desires, rather than crucifying those desires and obeying the Spirit, you are negating a chance to grow. And you are negating an opportunity to uh, receive heavenly rewards when you enter eternity. In the parable of the Minas in Luke 19, Jesus talked about a servant who did nothing with the money his master gave him. So there's two parables like this, the parables of the talents and the parables of the minas. Now in the parables of the talents, there was a man who threw away his master's investment. Uh, he buried it, which is what you do with garbage. So this is a person who, who rejected God's offer of faith. But in the parable of the minas, the servant kept the mina, which is a type of wealth, but he left it tied up in a handkerchief sitting somewhere to collect dust. He didn't throw away what his master gave him, but he made no use of it. Well, why is this so wrong? Well, remember, these servants aren't like butlers, okay? They're not, you know, farm hands, and then their master gives them money and they don't know what to do with it. In the context of these parables, these men were specifically tasked with investing their master's money. Okay, back in those days, if you were a king or wealthy ruler, you had servants who were, you know, intelligent uh, administers, and they would go out and invest your money and develop more wealth for you. Okay, and back then that meant they would have bought a farm, and the proceeds of that farm became your wealth. Or they would have bought cattle and raised the cattle and sold some of them, and that was your wealth. Okay, this is what these men were trained to do. This is what they were supposed to do for their master. So what was this servant doing? It was his job to invest that mina and bring back a return. No matter what return he got, it still would have been more than nothing. But yet he neglected the wealth his master gave him. So what the heck was he doing all that time? If the one thing he was supposed to do was being neglected, it means he was occupying his time with things his master did not want him to do. In other words, sin. Do you see the picture that the Lord is painting for us? As a Christian, you are forgiven for your sins. You have been made a child of God. And now as one of his children, he has imparted to you faith and spiritual gifts. He did this so you could use them in this life for his glory. Every single follower of Christ has a calling. You might not end up a preacher in a pulpit, but God intends for you to use your faith, so to speak, to serve him. Now that might look different depending on your life, depending on where you are, depending on the season of your life, but there's always opportunities for you to be used by God both in your personal relationship to grow and in your outward life to impact others for Jesus. But every time you indulge in sin, you are neglecting what God has given you. Now, it's true, we all stumble every day and we get back up. But if there's a Christian out there who thinks he could just keep sinning as his lifestyle because he's forgiven, that man or woman is neglecting his faith. He's spending all his time in the fleeting pleasures of sin. He's not actively abiding in Jesus. He's not seeking Jesus' direction, seeking Jesus' wisdom, and looking for ways to serve him. Instead, he's effectively building his life out of the flimsy stuff of this world, the pleasures of this world, which Paul calls wood, hay, and straw. You know, if you make your life about the latest trends, your favorite movies or video games, if you make your life about building wealth or collecting material possessions, guess what's going to happen? All of that stuff is going to burn up. Literally. But if you make your life about knowing Jesus and everything that comes with that, 
you will be building on that foundation of faith with eternal treasures. Now that's a pretty good reason not to sin, right? Perhaps one we don't always think about, but is so, so valuable. But even then, there are some flaws in this argument, and you might be able to see them. First off, we rarely think about or understand the realities of eternity. And for some people, it might be hard to resist temptation to sin, especially a sinful act that might make their current lives easier, based on a promise of something they won't see until eternity. Say there's a mother struggling to support her kids, and this handsome man comes along and offers her a house and an easy life and money for her kids as long as she doesn't mind he's married to someone else. Well, in that moment, she's thinking about her kids and putting food on the table. It's really hard for her to resist this temptation uh, with the promise of something that's going to happen a long, long time from there. Of course, it's still sin, and she must resist that temptation. But the idea of eternal rewards gets a little murky in those moments. You see, this motivation takes faith and maturity. You need to grow in your understanding of the Lord and of his promises to really understand how important these eternal rewards are. And people tend to become more preoccupied with these things as they get closer to the end of their lives, because that's what's coming up next. So as younger people, it's really hard to knock into our heads the reality that this life is short and eternity is much, much bigger. And some Christians are just unwilling to embrace this reality because they're so preoccupied with this world. Now, it doesn't mean we throw this reason away. In fact, that's a call for us to grow in maturity so we could better embrace this truth as something to inspire us. But there's actually another problem with this reasoning. And when I say problems, I mean they're not bad reasons not to sin. But on their own, they might not be enough. Like I said, that cynical person might find flaws and loopholes so they could keep on sinning. And with this reason, uh, one of the dangers for some Christians is that they become what I call mercenary. And what I mean by that is they might end up only serving God because of the prospect of heavenly rewards. They want to do good now, hoping that they reap some kind of riches in heaven. And as we've seen, the Bible makes many promises about the riches and glory awaiting for us in heaven, in God's heavenly kingdom. Is it greedy to want those things now? I don't think so. But for some people, it can become a greed-based motive. They're not doing the right things for the right reasons. In fact, they're obeying God and abstaining from sin and even doing good works because they want to get something from him right? And that's actually just as greedy as someone who obeys God for wealth in this life. So this actually brings us to our fourth reason we should abstain from sin and obey God. Now, this might not be a typical why we abstain from sin. It might be more of a how, but it's still one worth discussing. When I was a child, I remember reading a devotional that compared marriage to obeying God. The writer was a wife, and she talked about how her husband never used to use the turn signals when he was driving, and she would frequently chide him about it, until one day she noticed him using the turn signals when they were driving home. And he leaned over and told her that, you see, I use the turn signals because you asked me to. And then she explained how she was fine with him doing the right thing, but she was upset because he was only doing it to make her happy. And that he didn't understand that he should use the turn signals because it was safe and it was required by law. Do we obey God because he just tells us to? Is it that we really do want to sin, but we won't because, hey, God said so? Oh, we're just such good Christians, we could lie, cheat, and steal, but hey, we'll throw God a bone and just do what he says. Or do we understand why it's so important to obey God, why it's important to flee from what he calls sin? Some people flee sin over the prospect of heavenly rewards. Others obey God simply because he says so. And there are others who abstain from sin primarily to avoid the negative earthly consequences of sin. But there is another reason why Christians strive and aspire to avoid the sinful pitfalls of this life. 
and it's because God is transforming them. That's our fourth reason. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all with unveiled faces are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, I mentioned this a little bit before, but the outcome of being a Christian is a changed life. God intends for you to grow spiritually. And to grow spiritually means to become more like Jesus. That's simply what it means. And in this verse, we learn that those who are beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that same image. That's pretty powerful, right? Christians are being transformed to resemble the glory of God? Really? Yeah, you better believe it. You see, if we believe that humanity fell when we sinned in the garden, then we need to recognize that God's plan all along was to restore us to where we were before the fall. So what were human beings like before they sinned? Well, they were sinless. Jesus Christ died to take away our sins. But forgiveness doesn't mean God is saying, okay, I swept your sin under the carpet, that's it, move along, move along. It means you are free from your past life of sin. It really means you are a brand new person. Paul says this, we're going back to Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. He says, Or do you not know that as many of us have as been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Paul's saying our old life, what we used to be, was buried with Jesus. And just like he was raised from the dead, we have been raised from the dead, and we have a new life with him. But what does that mean? Is that like the criminal who was released from court, and they just have a second chance? And God's like the judge saying, okay, I gave you a break, now you better clean up your act. No, it's a much more foundational, fundamental change. You are no longer the same person you were before you received Jesus Christ. If you received Jesus Christ. God has put his spirit within you. You are now, according to scripture, a child of God. But he doesn't leave it at that. Like any newborn child, you're learning how to live. Not as a sinner alienated from God, but as a precious member of his family. And every day God is teaching you and his spirit is changing you from the inside out. Now part of this growth, this change, includes God's changing of your thoughts, desires, and actions. And Paul describes this in Romans 12, verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So, part of our spiritual growth is that our minds are being renewed. But how? Well, a Christian who knows Jesus will start to despise sin and love righteousness. As God's changing your mind, he's changing the way you think. And you see sin as something vile and ugly, and you'll see righteousness as something precious that you want to embrace. This transformation, this spiritual growth, is what we call sanctification. It is a process by which God makes us more like himself. Because we are changing so dramatically, we begin to look at the world the way God looks at the world. Through the wisdom he gives us, through the the insight he gives us, we begin to see just how bad sin is. And our hearts are being changed, so we no longer find pleasure in doing all the bad things we used to do. Paul says in Romans 6, we are dead to sin. That means sin can no longer satisfy us the way it used to. Now keep in mind, sin never really satisfied you. You only fooled yourselves into thinking it made you happy. But now that we are born again, we are deadened to sin. It no longer gives us those old thrills. Now you might be thinking, well, Adam, I still enjoy sin quite a bit, and I struggle with this or that thing every day. Let me assure you that this sanctification is a process. You and I both stumble from time to time. That doesn't mean you are still the old person you once were before you knew Jesus. Jesus is right now at work within you. 
And your job, so to speak, is to keep looking to Him. Keep receiving His grace, His wisdom, His love, His guidance. And over time, you will see a change inside of you. You will hunger to do good and want to flee temptations. And this is what the Bible calls the fruit or outcome of our faith. Now, that's a pretty solid reason to abstain from sin. But as I said, it's more of a how rather than a why. And of course, Christians still desire sin from time to time, even as they're growing in faith. Because your earthly body can still crave sinful things and you could still be tempted. So there is one final reason we must avoid sin. And I believe it brings everything we've been saying together. And I think it is the best reason of all. So why do people sin in the first place? That's a question we really need to answer. Now you might think, well, the Bible says we sin. Sinners sin, right? I mean, it's in our fallen nature. And that's true. We sin because we are sinners. Our ancestor Adam sinned and passed on that trait to the rest of us. And that's the theological overarching reason that we sin. But let's drill down a little more specifically. There is a reason people do things they know they shouldn't do. Why does someone go back to drugs and alcohol even though it destroyed their marriage and their family and their health? Why does someone dying of lung cancer continue to light up cigarettes? Why does a man who has made a commitment to his wife run off with a coworker? Human beings know from first-hand experience that the consequences of sin is death and death in all its forms. Yet despite the horrible things sin does to us, we keep going back to it. Think back to the first time you did something fun. Okay, it doesn't have to be sin. Okay, it could have been the first time you went on a roller coaster or ate your favorite kind of dessert or maybe you hit a home run in Little League, okay? Something like that. Okay, what did you experience in that moment? A kind of euphoria, right? You discovered that this thing, this activity, brought you pleasure. Well, in that very moment, your brain established a neural pathway, a kind of mental association. When you do this thing, you get enjoyment. So whenever you do it, your brain rewards that activity with a release of what we call dopamine, a chemical that makes you feel good. And whenever you want to feel that way again, you go do that thing. Now that in and of itself is not bad, but it sheds light on something important about sin. When we first sinned in a certain way, we gained some amount of pleasure from it. This is true for all sinful actions, even those we don't necessarily associate with pleasure. Because even losing your temper and ranting and raving brings a certain kind of pleasure, a release of some kind. So the moment you indulged in that sin, be it lying to get out of trouble, stealing something that didn't belong to you, looking at pornography getting drunk at a party, your brain established a neural pathway. You made a connection between that sinful activity and the pleasure you received from it. And now your brain makes that connection, and any time you want to feel good, and you want that dopamine release, you go do that thing. It's one of the reasons why people eat when they're feeling bad. Well, they're not hungry, but they eat because it makes them feel good. And same thing with drugs, same thing with sex, same thing with so many other things. From that day forward, whenever you feel sad, angry, anxious, scared, lonely, and so on, you are drawn back to that sin just so you could feel better. So you unconsciously associated that sin with feeling good. And over time, that sin became a means of fixing a deeper problem within you, whether it's depression or anger or so on. That sin, whatever it was, became a source of comfort to you. You began to see that sin as something important in your life, something that you need to deal with all the hard things in your life. Okay, you needed that sin because it brought pleasure. Okay, and the pleasure distracted from whatever pain you had. Now, it's a fleeting pleasure, and it's a pleasure that diminishes over time. But it's enough to fool you into thinking that sin is going to help whenever you have a bigger problem you're struggling with. Now, do you see the picture that's coming into focus? 
People chase sin because they think the fleeting pleasure it brings can give to them something else they really need. They think the sin can meet a much deeper need inside of them. But you should know that those needs within you, including emotional pain and stress and lifelong struggles, cannot be fixed with fleeting pleasures, not even close. As I said earlier, sin is spiritual. Physical methods cannot fix sin, and sin cannot fix problems in your life. All those problems you face are also spiritual, and no amount of earthly pleasure or dopamine can really fix what's going on inside of you. Sin, when everything is said and done, is a counterfeit to what you really need. It is a placebo, a substitute for the real thing. Placebos in medical terms are fake drugs that don't do anything. They give them to a test group to study the effects of an actual drug. But the people taking them think it's an actual drug. They don't know it's fake. And while they're taking it, they may actually believe they're getting better. But in reality, they're just taking sugar pills. They're not getting any medicine to help their condition, regardless of what they think or feel. And that is what sin is. A fake solution to your very real problems. And what's worse, the very thing you think is helping you will only bring more pain and sorrow. But despite this, we prop up that sin, and many more sins with it, as something very important to us. Those sins even become things that define who we are, that shape our identity. This sin is what I need. It's something I have to do. It's something that makes me what I am. And in the end, these sins end up becoming these little gods we worship, even though they are killing us. So what is the real solution? John four thirteen and 14 says this, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. John 6, verses 26 through 27 and verses 35 say this, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. In both these passages, Jesus tells us the solution. Sin is merely a counterfeit from what we can only get from him. People in this world are killing themselves for bread and water and all those earthly things they think can satisfy them. But the water Jesus supplies and the bread he gives will truly satisfy us. Believe it or not, this is the real, final reason we must flee from sin. Sin is like stuffing your face with sawdust. Yes, your belly will be full and you think you've eaten food, but in reality you have just killed yourself. Your body will starve because even though your stomach is full, you don't have any food in your system. We consume sin thinking it will satisfy us, even in little ways. But sin is an extremely poor substitute for what you can only receive from Christ. And I'm not pulling this out of the air. Let's think back to when Adam and Eve first sinned. Remember why Adam and Eve ate from the tree? It's because Satan convinced them that God was depriving them of something they needed. Genesis 3 verse 6 tells us a whole lot. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. These were the reasons they ate the fruit. That it was food, that it was pleasant to look at, and it could make them wise. Now ask yourself something. Did God deprive them of any of those three things? Remember, the garden was full of hundreds, if not thousands, of trees they could freely eat from including the tree of life, which God never prohibited them from eating. They were hungry. Man, they had plenty to choose from. 
And what about this pleasant to the eyes? Well, God put them in a garden full of beauty. And they lived among animals, beautiful creatures who lived peacefully with them. And they themselves were beautiful to one another. So they weren't deprived of beauty. It was all around them. And what about this desirable to make them wise? Adam and Eve could have gained as much wisdom from God as they wanted. Who is more wise than God? And he literally walked with them in the cool of the evening. Let's think about that. Why did God come down and walk with them like that? Just for the fun of it? Or did he intend to continue to teach them after he created them each day, training them on how to rule this new world? So if they desired any wisdom, it could have come straight from the source. The point I'm trying to make is that all the things they thought they could get from this tree, they were already getting from God. And what God was providing was abundantly more than what that tree could give them. It was a very poor substitute for what Adam and Eve could have gotten and continue to have gotten from God. And the same is true for every sin you and I embrace. Here are a few more passages proving that Jesus will supply what you think sin in this world could. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you stressed out? Are you tired? Do you need a break from the pain of this world? Listen, Netflix isn't going to provide it. Sexual sin can't cut it. A bottle of wine or cocktails are not going to bring rest. Jesus is offering rest for your soul. And there are no strings attached, no downside. He simply says, come, let me teach you. Or how about this, 2 Corinthians 1 verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we received ourselves from God. Now, this is really amazing. God promises to comfort us in all our troubles. All that sin you think will bring you comfort, release, satisfaction, it won't. But God is guaranteeing that he's going to bring you comfort you need. And not only will he comfort you with his love and grace and goodness, but you will be able to turn around and comfort others who are in need as well. Can sin do that? What sin can do that? Here's a few more. Romans 5, 1-5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have received access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation per- produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. 1 John 4, 18 and 19 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. And David writes in Psalm 18, verses 1 and 2, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and my horn of salvation, my stronghold. And God says to Abraham in Genesis 15:1, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. So I could go on and on. The Bible tells us in no uncertain terms that God is who we need. In more ways than we realize. He's not just up in the clouds, some being that we're trying to learn from or appease with our good works. He isn't here to help us when we can't do it ourselves, like in a case of emergency, break glass and ask God for help. No, we need God for everything. Not just once in a while, and not merely in religious terms. We need Him to exist. Our hearts cannot be satisfied without knowing Him. All the pain, brokenness, emptiness that's inside of us will not be satisfied or healed with sin. And every time we settle for sin, be it a thought or an action or something, we are depriving ourselves from what Jesus wants to give us. You were created to know God and be loved by Him. 
Sin is a lie that says you can be content without knowing God. That lesser things like sex, drugs, and rock and roll can really satisfy you. But our lives on earth as Christians are a journey getting us closer to living out this one truth, that all our needs are met in the person of Jesus Christ. You cannot survive on your own. You are not the master of your destiny. The Christian life isn't one where you do as much as you can to impress God. It is a life of dependence on Him for everything. But as often as we go back to sin, we are cutting ourselves off in that moment from our true source of life. That's not to say you suddenly cease to be a Christian, but it means for however long you are engaged in that sin, you are lying to yourself. That this action, thought, or series of sinful choices will actually help you when you know it will only kill you. What you really need in that moment is what Jesus wants to provide for you, whether that is comfort from his presence wisdom to handle a tough situation, or the grace to resist a powerful temptation. Whatever it is, it all comes from Him. So that's it. That's all I got for today. I think those are some really solid biblical reasons we are called to abstain from sin. Okay, it's just five, but I'm sure you could think of others or others that are related to that. Hopefully this will provoke you to do more study in this topic. But this is the final true reason that we just explored. Sin is a counterfeit. It is a distraction. It is the adulteress that wants to take you out of the arms of the one who really loves you. And the more you indulge in a certain sin, the more you are convincing yourself of this lie. That sin is what you really need. To the extent that you believe that, you are putting a wedge between yourself and fellowship with Jesus. The solution, the hope, of course, is grace. Jesus Christ has removed all your sin. You are totally forgiven. You are a child of God if you believe in Jesus. You don't have to go back to all those old habits, nor do you have to come up with new sinful habits to meet your needs. Everything you need is met in the person of Jesus. Even the needs you don't realize you have. Every time we go to him when we are weak, struggling, hurting, frustrated, confused, he supplies above and beyond what we are asking for. Jesus gives us water that truly satisfies. He gives us bread so that we will never starve again. All it takes is for us to turn to him and ask him to give it to us. The Gospel Talker podcast is written and produced by Adam Casolino. Visit us online at gospeltalker.substack.com.